So welcome to the show. I'm David Speed. I'm Adam Brazier. And this is Creative Rebels. Uh, it's a podcast for creative entrepreneurs. We started our first company, Graffiti Life, in a small garage. Yeah, it wasn't easy. But we built the company up to the stage where now we're regularly working with brands like Disney and Nike. And we've been lucky enough to make art all over the world. On this podcast, we interview successful creators. Their advice will enable you to take action and turn your passion into a career. There's literally been no better time in history to make a career from being creative. So many people are going to tell you that you can't do it, but we're here to tell you that you definitely can. Right, let's do a podcast. Welcome back, Rebels. I was very enthusiastic. <laughs> well, I'm in a good mood. Good. Um, I'm going to bring your mood down. What uh, What are you afraid of? Oh, that's a, that's a scary thing to start with. Uh, what am I afraid of? I'm scared of spiders. Yep, I'm scared of the ocean. Let's get rid of phobias. Now what are you scared of? I suppose I'm scared of everything going to shit. Yeah. Like yeah. The, the end of every, everything you've created just being destroyed. Yeah. But when you think rationally about that, that's impossible. I think it's very unlikely. It's not impossible. Yeah, I suppose you're right. Because like, if the market changed tomorrow and all of a sudden no one wanted our graffiti services anymore, then we'd probably be out of a job. We would be out of that job, but we'd create a new job. Yeah, there'd there always be another thing. It's just that... I think having that level of comfort, I suppose. I suppose that's that's uncertainty, isn't it? That's yeah. fear of fear of the unknown. Yeah. So obviously, the reason I asked you that is because this week's episode is focused around fear, with Hilary Gallo, who's uh, an expert on the subject, and because we've been doing a lot of talks up and down the country the past couple of weeks with Adobe, and we've been to lots of different universities and stuff, and we're meeting people firsthand, and so we're starting to get kind of a good view of what people are worried yeah. about and a lot of times it is fear of the uncertain isn't it it's yeah. fear of the unknown well i think like in the, yeah, in the last few weeks we've done five talks now and i feel like the most common thing that comes up is the fear of other people's opinions and the reason why people don't start a lot of things is because they're so scared about what other people will think of them yeah it's so debilitating isn't it, it holds yeah. so many people back and I mean, we've met people who have got great ideas, really great ideas, but they, they're too scared to start in case it doesn't work out. Yeah. What would you say to them? I'd say to them, just fucking start. Like, I was having a conversation um, the other evening at one of the events like, uh, with her listener, and she just didn't know how to start and was kind of unsure of like, which way to go. And, and I kind of broke it down. I was like, well, unless you actually start, you will never get there. Yeah. And it's that fear of well, what if I fail? I think that's that's the biggest thing. It's like, I don't want to fail and look stupid to other people for the fact that they might judge me. And really, they probably don't care. Yeah. it's A lot of it is built up in your head. I think, well, that's what fear basically is. It's, a, it's your brain's coping mechanism. Yeah, that makes sense. I think for me, obviously, we were going out on a massive limb by launching the podcast because if, if no one does listen to it, then technically that would have been a failure. Yeah. But we still clicked send anyway we still click launch there was that huge worry of if we make a podcast and no one listens to it we've told every single person that we know we've told all of our friends yeah. and then if in six weeks time they go oh how's that podcast thing that you're doing and you just go oh i'm not doing it anymore yeah i think if it failed it would have been fine we would have just done something else yeah but i think yeah it was that getting over the fear of well what if no one listens all this these eight months of work we put in planning didn't actually work and nothing turned out well and we got no listeners and no one cared about us everyone thought we had stupid voices and, and fat heads yeah and fat heads so but yeah it didn't go that way but i think if it did then we've had lots of other things that have failed in the past 
because we've tried them, but we know that doesn't work. But one of those many things could have taken off and we wouldn't be here now because we'd be doing something else. And we would have learned how to launch something properly. So then if we had a new brand coming along, we would know, well, we don't do it the way that we did the podcast, had yeah. the podcast gone wrong. Well, I think that's one of the reasons why it was a success because we've failed enough times in the past to learn from those mistakes to put into this new project that was the podcast. And that's why it was successful. I think if we'd have started this eight years ago, it wouldn't have been as successful as it was. So in a very roundabout way, what we're saying is if there's something that you're thinking of starting, just start it because you never know where it might take you. And I, th- I think a lot of times when you start something, you, you actually end up in a place that's completely different to where yeah. you thought you were going to go anyway. But if you're open to possibilities as you go along, then more opportunities are going to come in because you've started the other thing, you might end up doing something else. For us, I think the reason that we're putting more time into the podcast is because it's been so successful, like more successful than we than we actually initially yeah. planned for. Um, and so that means that because we're very open, we're like, okay, well, maybe we spend a little bit more time on the podcast because it's opening up different opportunities for us. And the feeling of getting DMs from people and helping people is absolutely amazing. So let's do more of that. But had we not started, then we never would have got there. Yeah, I think whatever you're into, whatever you're doing, you should just try everything anyway to work out what works and what doesn't because everyone's businesses are different. Everything people are pursuing is completely different. And those particular things are going to thrive in different places so some people might not work on instagram they might work on tiktok or linkedin or like they'll work in a different place that someone else will some people will be great on youtube because they're great in front of camera some people will hate the idea of being in front of camera so they should start a podcast instead unless you start and actually try those things you'll never know if you're good at it like when we started this we didn't we weren't good and we've got better we're still not great, but I think we're learning all the time. And I think that's what's important. Yeah, it's funny when people say, oh, I've, I've just discovered your podcast and I'm working my way back. I'm like, no, <laughs> start from the beginning, work forward. <laughs> what I loved about this episode was that we dove really into analyzing fear. And I think as soon as you can understand what's happening, then you're, you can have more power to, uh, to take control of the situation. Hopefully by listening to this episode, you will be able to identify what you're scared of, work out whether that fear is serving you or whether that fear is holding you back and then take action and start to uh, fight your fears and do some amazing work. Yeah, I think once you understand how your brain works, then you completely unlock fear and you understand it and you can combat it, which is super, super important. Yes, This week's guest is Hilary Gallo, a former lawyer and negotiator turned speaker, writer and coach. He's also done extensive research on fear. In his book, Fear Hack, Hilary explores our self-imposed fears and how limiting they can be. Hilary also runs workshops on fear in which participants write their biggest fears on the wall. And after a while, you begin to realise that most of us are afraid of the same things. In this episode, we talk about fear comfort zones and making changes whenever you do a change in your life it's not you notice that some of your friends get it and are really supportive and and want the best genuinely want to help you and want the best for you but some of them are challenged by it Hi, Hilary. Welcome to the show. Hi, David. And Adam. 
and Adam. <laughs> Hi, Adam. Um, thanks for coming in. I, I've read your book, and um, so as soon, soon as I'd sort of read the book, I reached out to you and, uh, and sorted this out. Um, because I think that there's, would you say fear is an emotion? Oh, that's a good question. Why have I not thought of that? Um, I don't, I don't, my gut feel is no. Because um, I was just about to say, it's the one emotion that every single human being goes yeah. through, but then is it an, an emotion? Well, it, Paul Ekman in the original, um, you know, with the, the, he did the sort of, the base emotions. He had fear there, mm. so... Because mm. like, does it fall in into, one sense it is? Yeah, but, but I feel like maybe it falls into instinct or something as well. Well, the thing is, it comes from um, preventing us from being eaten by lions and tigers. Mm. So it is a very base protective instinct. Because um, I, I mean, I read that babies are born and they only fear loud noises and falling down. Those are the only inbuilt fears. So is every other fear then taught? by or developed by culture, society, parents, experiences? Uh, that, that's what I would say, having seen what I've seen, is there's a, there's a whole layer of learned fears that sit above a basic set that we, we get, we have as infants. I think there's the majority are a top layer of learned narratives. Yeah, totally. Obviously, the, it's the one thing that, affects us all we like we're all afraid of something aren't we mm. well to be honest i think we need to be because if somebody's coming towards you with a knife down the street um you need to have that reaction to do something about it just as if a snake jumps up in your path in a more primitive environment you need to be able to react to that threat even without processing it through your mm. cognitive functions so it needs to be there to just to base protect you the question is, is that really what's happening to us in everyday situ situations in modern life? Is that equivalent to what most of our fears are day to day, doing the jobs and activities we do nowadays? How many snakes and knives and tigers are we dealing with? And is it appropriate to have that sort of deep instinctual response in a very different situation? Mm. That's why so I think it's interesting at the top layer. So when I'm um, in a disciplinary meeting or um, I'm about to get arrested for painting graffiti or or whatever it, I might be experiencing fear, it's um, my body can't tell the difference between a snake and this perceived fear of, or or if it's something really um, benign, like, like about I'm about to speak in front of a large group of people. Absolutely. I was going to say people will often say about dying in front of the room you know or being eaten by the you know it's literally the language of the of the um the wild animal um and death and uh yes i do think absolutely we've fallen into that degree of confusion between what's actually going on you know are we ever going to die in front of an audience mm. and yet it feels like we are and is that is that instinctive thing helping us hmm I don't think it is, you know. Why do we have that feeling of like, pure fear in front of an audience? Well, essentially because we've got the same reaction that's a bit confused perhaps, kicking in to protect us. So I'm one of the things I'm I'm seeing is actually what's going on is this this part of us 
um, that's designed to protect the physical body of who we are, mm. which I could broadly call the ego. If I, if I just label that the ego and say um, that what the ego is trying to do is to protect us from physical harm and to protect our current status. So in a way, it wants to stop us from doing all the things that might hurt, harm that or prejudice that. And the danger is if you let the ego have full reign, it would stop you getting out of bed in the morning because you're safe. You know, I'm safe here with what I have. And we have that feeling of what, you know, oh, I really fancy doing anything. And that's, I think a lot of the time, that's the ego speaking. That's job is to protect the physical body. Um, and the danger is if we allow it to do that, well, we're not allowing the other part of us the bit of us, the instinctive part of us that wants to be the greatest we can be and fulfil our destiny, it's, it's, it's in conflict with that other part of us that wants to fulfil something and wants mm. to go out there and do the graffiti or the, the fantastic thing. But you've got, this, you've got this conflict going on between what is essentially two parts of ourselves. Yeah. So the brain is, is saying, currently I'm safe, so there's no need for me to change this situation because if I do then I may be in danger yeah I think there's a predilection on us to stay as we are in our comfort zone but then the interesting thing is um, is the realization that if you if we stay in our comfort zone what happens to our comfort zone you know it, it doesn't get bigger it doesn't stay the same the comfort zone actually gets smaller so it's this parallel realisation when you think about it that actually by staying safe, you're actually making your zone of safety smaller and smaller and smaller. It does get smaller, doesn't it? It's sort of when you meet people that they they sort of have they're lived in the same town and then they and they always take the same route to work and get the same ready meal and watch the same TV show and yeah, it's a, it's a, I mean that frightens me actually of 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 becoming that, of, of everything shrinking around you. And it's true of any sort of trauma. So if you have a traumatic experience and you have a, um, you have a, a fear of something, you know, and you might um, suddenly believe you're, you're scared of um, mice or something. Um, if, if you go with that and you allow it to become your narrative, it absolutely will do the same, it'll get worse. Because what you're doing as you allow it to happen is you're reinforcing the narrative. So, of course, it gets worse mm. and your comfort zone gets smaller. And, of course, you stay in the same town and you go... That's really interesting because... So I was going to touch on phobias. I, I'm terrified of the ocean and, at, and it has got worse and I have um, justified it to myself, I suppose. And I suppose it's almost like... I mean, I've, I've always been, a, I used to be very um, wary of like affirmations because I thought it was all a bit hippie, woo-woo. Um, however, it is, that is just you telling yourself something over and over again. And I suppose the, the proof that affirmations could be taken seriously is looking at a phobia and it's something, if you think about it over and over again, how much it increases. Mm. Because, I mean, the, the very definition of phobia is, is irrational fear, isn't it? It's, it's something that, I mean... Yeah. So, um, the so for me, is it's irrational. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I, I would used, I used to say that I was afraid of sharks, but now I say that I'm afraid of the ocean because I know, and people laugh when I say it, if I was in, 
if I was in the sea with a with a whale, I'd die of a heart attack because it's just the the size and looking down just into this black abyss is fucking terrifying to me. And I, I would just die. I would just die. If if one of those those big eyes of a whale just like popped up. Like if I'm watching Castaway, you know, when the big eye comes up and things like that just freak me out. Like I can't watch Free Willy. Um, <laughs> it's like I, I'm absolutely terrified of anything in that realm because it's not where I'm supposed to be. However, I remember being 14 years old in the sea in Australia um, and having like fish bash into your legs because they don't give a shit and they just bump into you. And I remember that being the first sort of thing of where I'm like, I'm not really comfortable here. I don't really like this. Mm. But now I wouldn't even go to, because I was out past my depth there. I couldn't touch the bottom. Would never do that now. And I suppose that's because I've told myself over and over again, the ocean is not for you, buddy. Yeah, well, that's how it can happen. It gets worse and worse. And if particularly if you associate the, I think if you associate the, the danger, um, you know, it moves from being a benign, caring, peaceful environment in which you experience it to an aggressive, um, attacking, you know, and you, you it slowly, slowly becomes a monster, this thing. And suddenly this, this monster is going to attack you. So, of course, it associates with a heightened sense of fear and urgency and, you know, suddenly it's got you. But it's all a narrative. It's, that's, that's the strange thing. That's the really big finding with all this. You know, I get people to put their fears up on the wall, talk about them, um, and they all look at this stuff and they say, what do you spot when you spot? You look at the, these people's fears and they sort of slowly work it out. You know, they say, oh, where does it exist? Oh, oh, it's just a story we're telling ourselves, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> and they sometimes they won't see it in themselves, they'll see it in other people first. You know, because it's actually quite difficult to see it in ourselves. That's really beautiful in a way, though, that people... So you do workshops and the first thing you get them to do is write their fears on the wall on like on a post-it note. Yeah. And that's really lovely that people are, are sort of coming together. You can almost sort of step back and they're like, oh, no, don't worry about that. That's fine because of this, this and this. And then, But they can't see it for their own. I imagine with the wall situation as well, most people must put up the same things because most people well, have the Adam, same... Well, Adam, it's funny you should oh. say that because <laughs> what I really wanted to do is actually go through... Um, the, the ones that you listed in the book, because I just think it's really interesting. I think people listening, there'll probably be one that they'll it will pop up for them. So um, we have um, being found out, failing, rejection, not having enough money, poor health, mental decline, not being able to support family, not being loved for who I am, not being wanted, found to be wrong, loneliness, getting bored, not doing anything important with my life, being alone, not getting approval, aging, not getting what I want, ridicule, family getting hurt, being abandoned, losing what I have, being mediocre, not enough work. And then there's there's quite a few more and then um, someone's written all of the above. <laughs> I feel like what's quite interesting about that is it's all kind of like status related. I can imagine like having like a tribe of people like however many thousands of years ago and it's like you want to be the leader in your group and all of those basically kind of say you're going to get shunned from, like, you're no longer going to be the leader. Like, age, ageing, someone's younger is going to come in and get that from you. Loneliness, you're going to be kicked out of your tribe. It seems to be so much around something that was so long ago that isn't necessarily relevant these days. Yeah, it's interesting because that's often one of the things I point out to people. So who are these 
things about. Mm. And suddenly realisation, they're not about other people generally, they're about me. They're quite narcissistic, actually. They're, yeah. they're all about protection of the self. Mm-hmm. And as you say, you're absolutely right. Um, a lot of it is about um, being kicked out of the tribe or quite primitive in terms of just the way you show up to the others um, and fear of being the outcast. or And, yeah, the realisation, not only that we have these fears, but that it's not just me that's feeling this. Everybody pretty yeah. much is feeling it. Even the most... Some of the most powerful people we think in the room are feeling like this. Interesting. Yeah, it's kind of, yeah, these are all universal things. Everyone has something that they're worried about. It's interesting you said that. Um, I don't know, have you heard of the study of the mice with the, with the citrus um, smell in the room? It made, it made me think of it when um, when you mentioned snakes because it made me think of um, you put a cucumber by a cat and it freaks out. Yeah. As there's videos on YouTube because it's obviously something that's hardwired. Even if they live in the UK and they've never seen a snake, it's still in their DNA of that that cucumber equals snake, which equals danger. Right. Um, but there's. Have you not seen these videos? No, I don't think I have. They're amazing. Right. As soon as I'm going home, straight like, home. Yeah. Watch cats and cucumbers. Cats like, and cucumbers. They freak out. Like they turn around and just leap like like they're gonna die it's like that absolute shock and terror it's amazing and is there a big reveal you know you could you pull something off and the cat goes oh. um no they the people tend to i mean it's quite cruel really but people tend to place like a cucumber in the vicinity of the cat and but as soon as the cat clocks it it freaks out and, and jumps but the and i think i may have heard this on a joe rogan podcast but the the experiment that was done with uh, mice was that they would um, spray in the smell of citrus and then they would shock um, the mice. So the mice started to realise as soon as they smelled this citrus, they were about to be hurt. Um, and then then they bred the mice and the smell of citrus, even though the mice had not ever been shocked, the, the grandchildren would still react in fear as soon as they heard, as soon as they smelt the, um, the citrus. So it would suggest that these fears are... Um, imprinted in our DNA and then passed on. Wow. Not heard that one. Not that one, no. No, I think it was, um, wasn't it Lamarck, the scientist who was the sort of other side of um, Darwin? They, he he, he had that experiment where he cut off mouse's tails, um, or people did to try and disprove his theory, because he said that, you know, if if you do something to an, it will adapt. And so they, they mutilated these and they said, look, after a while they should reproduce without tails. So it sounds like you, that experiment proves this this guy who was a bit more um, cooperative friendly than <laughs> Darwin. His, his theories are more about cooperation. It kind of proves Lamarck, which is interesting. I mean, if it is true um, and these these experiences... It would it could explain so much of, of why, especially with sort of irrational fears, if something's happened to one of our ancestors, of that might may be a reason if it's imprinted in our DNA of why we are worried about something, but it seems irrational. Yeah, it could also, as well as being imprinted in the DNA, to what extent is it taught to us during our infancy? I mean, even mm. with the mice, maybe, because I mean, it's I think a lot of the fears that we have as humans. Um, you can see how they're passed on from parent to child. You know, if a mother's scared of um, molesters in the park, they will make damn sure their child is also grows up with that fear. So it just these these things are being 
inculcated and passed down, aren't they? So to what extent might animals be capable of doing a bit of that? I don't know if that was in the experiment or not. But. No, not sure. It's interesting, though. Um, so what got you interested in, in this whole topic? That's a good question. Um, well, I, I come from a background of negotiation. I was a corporate negotiator for like, 20 or 30 years. Um, and I wrote one book about negotiation. Um, and when I was talking about that, and part of the challenge of that book was saying we, we can be kinder when we negotiate. Um, and I realised that there was something that lay beneath our problems in negotiation. When we got stuck, um, we call it positional, we got locked into a position, um, I realised that that was happening generally because people were scared of one thing or another. They were scared of the boss or losing their job or what people might say. Um, and that's something I'd been kind of learnt to do as a negotiator, to always ask what's sat beneath. You know, I'm seeing this surface behaviour, what's, what's causing that? Because if I can see what's causing it, I can actually, I've got more options to address it. I can be more creative about the answers. Um, so I did that with negotiation and realised fear was present. Um, and then I, I did that with stuckness. I realised that it wasn't just negotiation situations, it was my own life. You know, I, was, I was in a job for probably five years um, beyond in a big organisation, beyond where I wanted to move on and should have moved on, but I was scared because um, the loss of salary and income and stuff. Um, and I realised my own stuckness was due to my own fear. Um, so I saw it myself, and then I started to see it everywhere. I started to see it in other... I mean, there's, an, there's a possibility it's just like the hammer and nail thing. You know, once you, you have a theory, you see it everywhere. But I think that it's pr it seems to be a good proof of... of of that theory that um, people generally, when they get stuck, it's because they're scared. Um, and that's why I got, I thought, well, if you can start to crack this thing open and try and start to get people to shift their relationship with fear, um, then the, you, there's something here that's important and not just for, for the obvious stuff. Um, to help that person, but also help us as a, as a human race. Cause actually, you know, to what extent is this an evolutionary problem for us? To what extent is this stopping us from moving forward? Because actually fear is being used to control us politically. So if we can unpick it, perhaps we can have a more interesting political future as well. That's the long answer of why I got involved. So when you um, decided to finally take the leap, um, what, what gave you the courage? Was it recognising that it was fear that was holding you back? Because before you can help anyone with fear, you had to... Yeah. Employ it yourself, I suppose. Um, interestingly, no. It, I, I mean, I I think over time I experimented and I, I kind of, in hindsight, I experimented with my edge of fear um, and doing more and more um, and realising actually if I did things that I feared I was okay, I actually came through it. So in one way, yes, um, I did a lot of this sort of experimental process um, and growing towards it that so I, does that look like going skydiving or is that just asking for 10 percent off when you get a coffee what's like it what was were things you... it was things like um i was in a big organization i wanted to get my my fellow commercial people together to talk about the issues we we're facing and i i wanted to get a drinks together to do that um a gathering sort of of an evening and i was scared to do it you know, I thought, well, shit, if I do this, no one's going to turn up. 
It's going to be miserable. It'll be me, me there with a bottle and I'll be waiting in the bar all on my own. Um, and so there's loads of things like that I didn't do because I was scared of not people not showing up or being abandoned or all these things that I think are common, but I, I would feel particularly. And I, at some stage, I decided just to get hell on and do it. Um, and then the first time I dragged someone with me to make sure I wasn't on my own. And yeah, the second time, no one turned up for about an hour. And I sat there on my own and thought, this is great. You know, I've, I've actually faced the fear. And then a couple of people turned up and yeah. it was successful. And I, I kind of got through it and beyond it and realised that was just, you know, you had to break through this barrier. I had to break through the barrier. Um, so there was a bit of that going on in my underlying preparation, I think. Oh, I know. But the actual moment that came was very... I kind of... I was in a difficult situation with my boss um, and he was trying to tell me what I should do and how I should do it. And there was something deep within me that rebelled against that and said, I'm just not going to stand for this. Um, and I decided at that point I was going to move on. I was going to resign. Um, and I felt like I was almost in a movie where I wasn't entirely in control. It was a deeper part of me that was in control because the rational me was screaming yeah. and saying, what are you doing? What are you doing? Don't, this is crazy. You're just about to walk out of a very, very well-paid job. Um, but there was another part of me knew what I was doing and had belief in that. And I think it was only because that other part of me had some deep down stronger message because it knew that route was possible. So I've only it was only after doing that and, and, and leaving the job and going self-employed, which is kind of six years ago now, that I kind of started to rationalise the whole process and think about what I'd actually done. Um, but it was, yeah, very odd. So going self-employed, did you go into negotiation for yourself? Um, I'd I'd trained as a mediator, so solving disputes and conflicts, and um, as an executive coach. Oh. So the first thing I did was just pick up clients using those skills. How did you find those first clients? I just got lucky. I mean, I, I had, um, in the literally the last weeks of my job, I had somebody phone me and say, could you help um, a member of his team? Mm-hmm. Um and I wouldn't have been able to do that properly if I'd still been in the job. So I was slightly. So I actually, as soon as I resigned, to leave then. At the moment, no, it didn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But as soon as I got out of the building, I thought, right, that's how I need to get on with doing that. I connected the two. Um, so it kind of all came together. Um, and I think I honestly do think that if you express your commitment to the world. If you're committed to stuff, as soon as you get committed, kind of stuff tends to happen. Mm. You see stuff in your own immediate um, environment or your conversations with people change or just people offer you stuff they wouldn't have offered you if you weren't committed. Sometimes that process takes a while, but something shifts. And until you're committed, well, why would anyone else be to your... Thing. I think that's so important and, and no one's brought that up on yeah. the podcast before and it's so, yeah, it's so relevant yeah as soon as you do become committed then that's when yeah it, it feels like luck but it's just that engineered thing of, of people and I suppose I hate the term but like I'm um, talking it into the universe is as soon as you do start declaring oh this is the thing that I'm doing then people say oh well then I've got this opportunity mm. which had you not been committed it just wouldn't come yeah. your way 
I think it's like it's giving yourself a title as well, isn't it? Because it's like if I meet someone, the first thing I say is I run a graffiti company, and that's kind of how I start a conversation. Whereas if I quit and became a ballroom dancer, I'd be like I'm a ballroom dancer, and then opportunities like that would arise. Mm. Whereas when I speak to people now, they'll be like, oh, I know someone who works here. They need a wall painting, or it, yeah, whatever you say is what your response is going to be. And you can't go out and be like, well, I do this, 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 and this, because suddenly you're not an expert on anything. And they're like, oh, do I want to ask to offer this person who's not an expert a potential job? But then, I mean, we do so many things that I... So I've started saying uh, multi-passionate creative. Yeah. Cause, and then they're like, well, what's a multi-passionate creative? And then you can go... You can do the whole gambit of everything that we do yeah. do, so... Yeah, I generally started... I do lots of things yeah. <laughs> and then you can go through them. And, but I kind of, there's always like an order in terms of preference because it's like, I'm not, I won't always get through the list. <laughs> so you have to like start with the things that are most important. Yeah. I will sometimes base that on what they do though and reply with whatever I do that's most relevant mm. to what, what it is that they do. Yeah. It's really funny because I do a networking workshop and, uh, and I have a thing called root stem and branch you know, which is the, the way of responding yeah. to what you do. But I think it's absolutely so much easier if you know something about the other person. Yeah. So I would always avoid saying what I do till till I know something about them. I would ask those questions about them because then I can land something of what I do that's, that's relevant to them, which is kind of a bit, bit of a trick, but it's kind of helping everyone really, isn't it? Because I think the more specific you are, the better. Mm, definitely. Because you don't want to be too vague about anything. So a bit like, oh, well, are they really? Do they really know what they're yeah. talking about? Yeah. But yeah, that's that's a whole subject of networking. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Do you think you made uh, the right decision? Oh God, yeah. Oh yeah. Um, every year, I look back on. I mean, I literally do sit down this time of year and think about where I am now. Um, is it this time of year you quit, or is this just yeah, a time you end of October? Um, and I think about. Christ, I'm X number of years on. How do I feel compared to last year? Um, would I go back? You know, how do I feel about that? I just track the process from last year. And, write this down or is it all mental? Uh, I, I do have a book and I, I do write stuff about that sort of thing in there. So, yeah, I can go back and look at those sort of things. And I just think it's interesting to, to just check in and say, you know, I, I feel this much more positive about what I do and who I am because I think for all of us, well, certainly for me, I'm on a constant finding out of what it is I really want to do. You know, when I grow up, I'll finally know. But, um, you know, I, I still don't have the utter core of what it really is. I, I still think there's something even more interesting that lies just beyond where I am that is even more interesting. And so I just have to sort of experiment and find a few because surely there's probably something even more suited to me to help others that whatever it is that is just waiting there in terms of of money are you making more or less now because you said it was quite a well-paid position that you were in if i was earning anything like i was earning previously i'd be um yeah that would be unrealistic i'm i, I the way i say it the first year i i was self-employed i'm paid enough i earned enough to pay the bills um the second year I earn enough to pay myself a minimal salary. The third year I was paying myself, you know, you know, I guess, at getting towards an average wage. Um, 
and I now I'm 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 decently beyond that. Um, but what I've also realised is I don't need anything like the income that I used to. That I don't think it's helpful to actually to have a big income because I found my solutions to life then weren't as creative and weren't as fulfilling. And I was, to be honest, my relationship with stuff and consumerism and wasn't wasn't something I was really proud of. There's a danger in being a well-paid executive. Mm. It's not a very... I, I didn't... In, it wasn't me. I mean, it may be other people, but it wasn't me. I wasn't... actually wasn't comfortable there. And although it's nice to be able to take the family on a nice holiday or have nice things, there's a bit of it I really didn't... I didn't like. Um, and I, there's, you know, there's an inner hippie to me that would quite like to be scraping by on very little... Yeah, and I you're, I can't and you're say happy that's... and fulfilled every day, and not stressed to the eyeballs for a big for a big paycheck. No, I mean, I um, I really try not to worry about the outcomes and the outputs. It's nice that things happen. It's nice to be comfortable to to some extent, but um, I try not to think about that stuff too much. Um, but I'm very conscious. I'm kind of I've, I've been fortunate in that um, I went through a period of doing very well, and so I, you know. I managed to provide certain things, so um, I'm I'm kind of lucky in that respect. Um, you know, I don't I don't have to earn huge amounts of money to 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 get by because I've kind of mostly paid for a house and that sort of thing. Mm. So, you know, it, it's it's different for all of us, isn't it? Um, so, and I, you know, I'm very conscious that what works for me might not work for everyone. How important has networking been for your career? Because I know you teach other people how to network, but has it has it benefited your business by networking? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it benefited my transition uh, and then it's benefited where, where I've moved because I've, I have to say, if I'd kept the surroundings of people I had in the old days, uh, in my very corporate career, I don't think I would have had the inspiration to do a lot of things I've done. So I will always say this, the, the, the network I've got has been the greatest assistance in helping me change my thinking. So I think if you want to move a certain direction, the best thing you can do is, is get to know and get, get to events and meet people who are occupying that space because I think they will help you see the possibility um, that exists for you and to help you move in that direction. Um, and that that was true through the trend that big transition, but it remains true. Um, and we stand on the shoulders of giants. You know, there's only a limit out of what we do that's entirely original. So, you know, you hang out with cool, creative people, and you get ideas, and you think, okay, what if I mixed this with that and did a bit of that? And you hear something. I mean, Fear Hack came out of a conversation in an experimental workshop where I th- where somebody just tried something, and I thought. Oh, there's something in that. I want to go deeper into that whole feeling, you know, connected with my interest. But I said my interest is going to be, you know, walking towards fear with kindness because it felt like a clue from this exercise. So I wouldn't have done that if I hadn't been in that, a different environment than I had been in a few years previously. So, no, I'm a massive fan of that. And I think, you know... It's our connections with people and the environment around us that kind of connect us and and, and provide us. 
Yeah, that is. So you've written on the front cover of the book. It says "Be free through love," and I suppose that's your hippie side coming out again. But um, so, what are, are some techniques that people can use? This sort of the kindness and this love to to get through fear. So, there's a technique I really like. Um, I call wishing well, um, which is if I'm a bit down, um, particularly, I will survey faces in the street, um, and I will just take in something about that person um, and I will wish them well um, I will think about what their day might involve and I will just wish them well in that day and that they are happy successful and their day moves upward is this something you'd say to them or just think in your I, head no I, 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 I wouldn't say it to them. it's just something I think in my head mm-hmm. uh, it's entirely um, I've always avoided doing anything that they might notice yeah yeah Probably, <laughs> there's certain things I, I wouldn't do, you know, risk of being thought a weirdo. And there are certain people in the world who can just go up to a stranger and wish them well and it and it be received really, really brilliantly. But that's very few of us and yeah. most of us will be, mate, what are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, one day maybe I should try it. But no, I just keep it to myself. Um, and I just, I just find if I do that... Um, quite a few times it has an effect on me um i'm wishing them well but i'm also and i think if you if you think as i do that everything's connected that we're ultimately all one of the same that by wishing others and doing good to others and and um pushing good stuff out there to others not only does it do something in you that just engenders a feeling that's positive but maybe you are actually ultimately wishing yourself and the system well actually anyway um but it just seems to work for me um so that's one really easy it's not so much fear but i think there's a bunch of things that we can do um i've got another one i do before i go to bed Should i tell you about that one sure yeah, go, go for, for it. it so this came out of um a workshop i was involved in and there was a there was a realization that actually your brain waves change as you go to sleep um so they go from i forget the levels uh, you know, delta and epsilon and all this. It's too confusing for me, all those yeah. those definitions. But your brainwaves fundamentally change, so you go into a calmer, more subconscious, more easily influenced state. Um, and it came to me, the realisation, that the, way, the if you allow yourself to go to bed unhappy or sad or with bad memories, you will wake up even worse. So I thought to myself, well, why not turn that around on its head? Um, so I've been doing this practice of making sure, that as I, just before I go to bed, I'll go through the really good things that happened in my day. Um, and I'll make sure I have, I don't know, three or four or more um, good things, happy thoughts that happened. And I'll just remind myself of those on the basis that I can have those sort of things in my head as I drift off to sleep. And I... I didn't realise what good this was doing to me till one evening. It was on a Sunday morning, or on, on a Sunday morning, I woke up and I realised I was a bit down. And I realised, shit, didn't I got home really late last night and I went to bed straight to sleep without doing that. And I thought, oh, wow, those two must be, you know, they're likely connected. Um, and I've, I've just been tracking that and noticing it. And it really, really does seem to have an effect. The more I do it, the more up I... I wake up and 
I've now started to refine it and think... What I realised is you can sit there at night and think, oh, what happened during my day that was really cool or really happy or really joyous? And you sit there and you struggle. So what I do now is I try and make sure I remember as I go through my day what are some things... So you actually appreciate things as they're happening. Yeah. yeah. So have you ever seen a film about time? It's a Richard Curtis film. Um, about time is all about this sort of principle of being able to enjoy your day um, as it happens. And just this skill of being able to notice things as they happen. Um, so I'd, I'd, I'd now try and, particularly nature, if I see something beautiful, I'll make sure I notice it and remember it. Um, and then I've got more of a library of stuff. Um, to be able to think about at that moment. Um, I just find that technique really helpful. I feel like it's really nice that all of these things all lead to positivity because being in a positive mindset, it's like you never know who you're going to bump into at what period of time. And it's like if you bump into them in a happy mood, like everyone's met someone and they've been in a foul mood and you've gone away and they're like, they're a bit of a dick. But like if, you go into, <laughs> if, you, like if you're always happy or going into everything with positivity, then someone's going to bump into you and that could be a really nice meeting that could then lead on to something really good. It's almost like by being happy and positive, that's going to create better things for your life going forward. Yeah. Well, there's, there's proof that um, having that more open attitude um, and it just shifts something fundamental and you become more lucky because mm. you spot things. You notice, you'll notice that literally uh, Richard Wiseman, um, who's an expert in this, did some experiments and he literally showed that the people who had that mindset, they noticed the money that he left on the ground, whereas the people who weren't, they didn't. And you think, whoa, that's it. I mean, it's not all about finding cash on the pavement, yeah. but it shows something, doesn't it? Yeah, because like that, that cash is obviously like a metaphor for like great things that can happen. And yeah, by being in that positive, it's even, I feel like it's so linked to confidence and having that confidence and knowing that like you can do anything being that kind of positive mindset of like I can do anything, the world's mine, then any little thing you're like, well, what can, how can I progress this? Whereas if you're in a more of a negative mindset, you just closed off to it. You're like so yeah. internalized. Whereas you're by going out and being like, I've got this confidence to do anything. You're constantly looking for the next thing. It's like if you were on a game show and you had to find 20 things within an hour you'd be fully looking for them and really out there. But in your day-to-day -day life, you don't do that. Like if you're on Crystal Maze, you're trying to get those gold tickets. Whereas, yeah, if you're negative and you're just close to them, they're all just going to drop by and pass away. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, I, I think there's an element to which we don't like. We're kind of wary, particularly in, in the, the Brits, about too much confidence. But I think it, it it's that just positive framing of experiences. Mm. That occur to you that's really what i mean it's that having that positive frame as opposed to a negative frame and also i think it contributes to if you're if you're on the crystal maze and you're under massive stress and pressure and you feel you're up against it you, your whole faculties will be like the panicked person in front of the room of people who are gonna eat you alive yeah um so you'll 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 forget things you, you won't notice clues in the audience. Your whole state will be different. Um, and so you can reframe. It's, it's not just the confidence. It's, the re, it's, the, it's your nervous state of being able to be calmer in that yeah. situation because then you'll remember all the things you wanted to say. 
you'll come across more powerfully because you'll probably be speaking more slowly. Um, and, and you'll spot things, the clues that will help you. Um, so you'll win the game show, weirdly, yeah. if you don't put so much pressure on yourself. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's a, the, there is a question here about finding our, our, our state and that's really important, isn't it? Because we all obsess about getting stuff done and the destination and the, the stuff, but actually how we are, our state of being, is really quite important mm. for our results. It's like, I suppose it's like having a race in a car and being like, well, in this car I'm going to put really good... the analogies f- today. <laughs> I'm going to put really good fuel and then that's going to make me go forever and this one I'm going to put some chip fat... And that's like your negativity that's going to like, you're only going to go so far in it and then your engine's going to get fucked up. Yeah. Whereas this one's just, you're going to absolutely smash it. Well, it was a good analogy, so I'll give, <laughs> I'll give it to you. Well, and a lot of what we do is put shit, you know, fossil fuels in our, in our lives, don't mm. we? We put some really shit stuff in there and we expect ourselves when poor nutrition and poor this and poor that to, to be functioning as... Yeah, fueled as, by negativity. Yeah, yeah, and shit. And shit, food, yeah. a lot of the time. It, yeah. it feels, in that discussion, I'm making big leaps here, but it feels like confidence is almost the opposite of fear. I thought that earlier. Because it's yeah. the, and I mean, confidence you probably couldn't say is an emotion either, but I suppose it is a it is a state that you can get yourself in. You can become, like, before I go on stage, I make myself more com- more confident. Yeah, because confidence is a repetition of doing something lots of times successfully. And if you've been on stage a hundred times and it's worked every time, there's not going to be that fear there anymore. It's going to be, you're just going to have confidence. So yeah, it does seem like it does balance it pretty well. Yeah, and I make a distinction between the whole sort of uh, power pose, the kind of aggressive dominant sort of um, confidence that there was a lot of talk about a few years back. Because I wouldn't espouse that, you know. I'm going to smash this. I'm going to dominate yeah, this. Yeah. I'm going to kill it. Um, I wouldn't espouse that. But I think that, you know, I've. I'm it's more calm. of a feminine energy, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, definitely more feminine than masculine. Yeah, yeah. it's a, it's a, it's a different sort of power. It's, it's, it's a calm knowledge that I have the resources to deal with this. Mm-hmm. And I will respond well. That I, I don't need to fear the external aggressor, and I don't need to fight it. I will respond appropriately. And so, yeah, that is more that internal energy. Yeah, um, I got this. Yeah, it, yeah it's, it's more the, nurturing. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. in fact, to think about that. I, re- I read an article a couple of years ago that was talking about fight or flight was this thing that was um, was taken as fact up until very relatively recently. That and they'd only studied males. And so then when they started studying females, they realised there was also, um, I think it's tendon befriend was the, I don't know if you read this article, I could send it to you, but, mm. um, but there's, so, so there's fight or flight, which, and this is the, generally speaking, occurs in most males. There will also be some females who will also do either fight or flight, but then there's also um, tendon befriend, which is this other set of um, skills that, that females are much more likely to do in a stressful situation than than just fight or flight. Yeah. Well, the way I look at it in the calm thing, I look at it, I picked up something from um, Professor Stephen Porges. He talks about the polyvagal system. Um, 
And the way I summarise that is like a traffic light. What's the polyvagal system? The vagal system is a way of understanding the nervous system as a, as a complex way of um, mediating our state mm-hmm. through the vagus nerve, which runs up from the sort of gut onto the, the brainstem. Um, but what he's... is all quite complicated, but the way I like to summarise it is like a traffic light. So you've got the red of the traffic light, the amber and the green, and the... The, the amber is the fight-flight. So it's this uncertain, very masculine sort of, I will, either, um, I will either fight this or I will run away from it state. you then got the red, which is freeze. So that's the ancient response of sort of lizards and such yeah. that, to danger that will just freeze. And so we still have a bit of that as humans, but we're mostly our response is a fight-flight. But the point being that there is this green zone of the traffic light beneath um, which is safe which is the I think it's almost equates to what you're talking about that's the safe to engage so we go towards yeah and the point being that we don't go lovingly towards something from fight flight mm. you have to change your state to be instead of fight flight and a bit anxious not sure whether I'm going to be attacked or whether I'm going to need to run away and this whole narrative of fighting and warfare and everything being about f- fighting frankly um, no, there's a shift to an altogether different state which is your ability to befriend and to love and to, to care and move towards in a different state and I, I don't think we really see it like, as clearly as that as being this state shift before you realistically can it's and we like- expect people to do it from this state in fight flight and that's it doesn't work like that it almost seems like you've got the issue and then like the amber's like your monkey brain like kicking in your natural instinctual reaction to it and then the green's the more conscious thought about so it's like don't don't let the amber kind of like stop you there kind of get your consciousness to kick in at the green and then go from there yeah yeah which is why when you think about creativity I I think most of our best work is done when we're calm in that green creative you know we come up with it's the it's the thoughts in the bath and when we're out running and when we're relaxed and fluid and moving our creative juices are flowing aren't they but you put us into a panic the boss comes into the room starts shouting at us we close down don't we Mm. it's a completely different our state changes and our It's like your ability to problem solve disappears. Like problem solving happens in that green zone. In that yellow zone, it's just like if your boss is shouting at you, you either want to like punch them or run away. Yeah. Whereas, yeah. yeah, you need to get down into that green set of like consciously, okay, how can I solve this? How can I get myself out of it? Absolutely. Yeah, and we, you know, that's kind of the, the thing that smart employers do in the workplace. They kind of give people a comfortable environment in which they can excel. Um, but not all environments are like that, are they? Adam mentioned the the monkey there. You talk about monkey in the book, um, and you talk about the nasty little beaver as well. Um, could you explain a little bit about your thoughts about the the monkey, the nasty monkey, and the horrible beaver, and then also the uh, the lovely horse and lovely dolphin? Yeah, when I, when I was writing, it appeared to me that there's certain core characteristics that um, needed a a clear model and, and, and it just came that animals kind of attach themselves to them 
So the monkey is my shorthand for the bit of us, the strategy that we have that believes that the solution to everything is to dominate. Mm-hmm. So if we climb up the hierarchy, if we get promoted, um, that'll be our solution to life and everything. So yeah. if we're bullied, um, it'll be okay once we're older and more senior and we're top of the class and everything because we'll be able to actually what ends up a lot of the time is that we can then bully others. Yeah. Um, or I'm not happy, you know, being a junior in this organisation, but never mind, I'll get promoted and I'll be okay. Mm-hmm. And it's a fundamental strategy um, of safety by hierarchical climbing um, that I think is you, we see in humans. And I think that's... I just What I did when I started this work was notice there were certain behaviours that were just... They were too strong in our underlying... Um, psychology so I call that monkey Um, and I think that it relates to fear because if you're always trapped into that strategy you lock fear into your way of thinking Mm -hmm. you'll always be fear Um, and beaver is the other capacity um, which is to storytell so it isn't that we have this monkey thing it is that we have this other capacity which joins up with it um, you know how you have Tony Blair, he would only ever been as, as good with um, his chief of staff, Alistair Campbell. You know, you, you always, when you have a really strong person as a leader, you have a, a storyteller, um, a head of PR, who spins the, the narrative tales. And so Beaver is that. Beaver, what we tend to do is we tend to have these strategies of domination and strategies of climbing... Um, and then we tell ourselves why those are okay or why those are justified or why they're a good thing. Um, and what this beaver thing does is embeds that way of thinking into our way of behaving and our habitual behaviour. So I think the powerful thing is that these two things work together. And that's by building a dam of just reinforcing the same... Yeah. Yeah, literally, I, I chose the beaver because it seemed like that's what was happening sort of... Normally we'd be flowing as a sort of river flow and what the beaver did was essentially build a dam in the river that kind of blocked things up and rigorously maintained this dam network of of habits and Mm -hmm. forced customs. And this is, if you do this to me, um, this is the way I'll respond. It's just just the way I am. And people would start to think, that's Hillary. Hillary's Hillary because when we press that button, he responds in the following way. Um, but I don't think that is who we are. It's just a habit we've acquired. It's a fear response. Mm-hmm. So part of what I'm saying in the book is, um, you know, what scares us makes us. It's not just that um, we need to deal with it in an ongoing situation. It's actually part of who we are. And sometimes people want to unpick some of those strategies and habits um, because you get to a certain point in life and they're not working for you. So that's beaver and monkey. Dolphin and uh, horse are kind of the antidote. So what I'm saying in the last part of the book, in the reframe, um, is that we ought to... um, Dolphin's all about joy, accepting the moment, uh, seeing what is is there in the present and um, uh, believing in that and going for it. Um, And horse is about taking the challenge of the journey. So... If you think about a, a, a great love story, a great love story is all about a passion. But it's not just about a passion and a desire and a, and a, a love of something. Um, it's not enough just to fall in love for it to be a great love story. It has to be difficult. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the way life is. Mm. 
you have this mixture that makes a great love story that kind of is my model for how we should we should be happy approaching things that the great things aren't easy so it's this constant combination of having a passionate belief in where you want to when you where you want to go which kind of fear is almost actually if you look at it the right way it's, it's your compass it tells you what that thing is because the thing you fear the most is usually the thing you should do the most and the corollary is it won't be easy because it's a rough a love story and it'll only be amazing because you overcame difficult odds mm. to achieve it and that's life you know life wasn't meant to be easy but life was meant to be damn fulfilling as long as you take on and you can address your um your challenges and so that's the that's the reframe you know get rid of this this monkey and beaver and and go with this other you know get rid of the monster story and go with the love story and it's funny isn't it that we we move towards the easy that's the the we're such weird creatures. Aren't we? like, <laughs> the most attractive thing to do is to go towards the easy because it's easy, it's safe, and you don't have to make any effort. But yet, all of the joy comes from the struggle. It's just—it's weird. It's—I mean, if there is a higher power, then that's like kind of a, a sick game of like <laughs> of like the puppet master just yeah. messing with us. Yeah, well, that's it. And and how much stronger is that when with we're with a bunch of mates? Particularly if, if it's, it's it, I mean, us, the men, and we're worse still at it, aren't we? I mean, in in a tribe, and we can do terrible things sometimes or, or um, you know, get caught up in groupthink that's really not something we do on our own, but because we won't go against the group. Um, and, yes, one of my early challenges in this book is is to answer the question, why is it that there's this huge piece of elastic that pulls us back to this unhelpful behaviour? Because if you can't start to answer that question, you're never going to get out of this stuckness in always being pulled back to acting like a... Well, I don't want to call it a dick on air, do I? (laughs) A dick, yeah. A dick. That's right. How do you get unstuck? I think you say, how do you you not be a dick? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I... I honestly think, I mean, I do this stuff because, I mean, people inevitably look at this and say, well, yeah, you did that once or, you know, you, you're not perfect. I'll say, yeah, damn right. Um, I do this stuff because I really struggle with this stuff and I was pretty bad at it once. I was pretty terrible alpha male in my early years. Um, and I think the way you get through it is by seeing it in yourself and seeing feeling the pain it causes you. Mm. Um, so the very first time I was in, I, I really saw it was I came home from a negotiation and I'd been there banging the table and being aggressive and um, swearing at everyone all weekend. And I came home to my then partner and um, she called me out and said, you know, I don't like, I don't like how you're behaving. Um, and it really shocked me because somebody I really cared about was, was, putting a finger on something that I thought, shit, she's right. Um, I don't want to be like that. Um, and so that, that mixture of awareness and a bit of pain, because if you're not in pain, you're, you're really not going yeah. to bother, are you? Um, I think you'll work your way through it. You'll you'll find your way to stop being a dick because you don't want to be anymore. And that's, that's the way we all learn and get better, isn't it? Because let's face it, none of us are perfect, aren't we? We're all, we're all messing things up. But that's fine as long as we're as long as we're committed to sort of try and notice it and the stuff that annoys us 
you know, every so often do something about. One thing I was thinking about, and I suppose it come it comes back to the the confidence thing. Um, but I was thinking about Vikings and going to Valhalla. So they were completely unstoppable because as they're they're as they're fighting, you've got the English who are fearful of death and whereas they are embracing of death yeah. they want to be killed they want a glorious death to go to Valhalla and as a result none of them get killed because they're all such great warriors because they don't have the fear it's uh, just a great analogy there thanks mate <laughs> yeah it's interesting isn't it that it, be more Viking yeah but it works they don't, they, I like the fact they don't get killed as much yeah, it's bizarre, isn't it? Because they're they're openly. I want a glorious death on the battlefield. It's like it's the the peak of being a Viking. Yeah, yeah. If all of the silly dramas that I've watched are <laughs> based in truth, let's let's be fair. I mean, a lot of it's dramatization, well, but it, it kind of works. Um, it's the biology of belief, and it is the 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 realization that I mean, Henry Ford had this thing where he said, um, "It doesn't matter whether you believe you can or you believe you can't. You're right." Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think that there is a underestimated power um, in your belief. I mean, if you believe you can, you will find the way. And without being overconfident or arrogant, you will slowly but surely make your steps. You know, look at the example we've been shown by Greta Thunberg in the last year. Mm. Surely if she can do that, anything is possible just yeah. by, by the power of belief that stuff will happen around you. I don't. I don't care about what happens. I'm just going to sit here and look what happened. She. She didn't have a. I'm sure she didn't have a conception of what is now happening. Yeah. Happening when she started that out, and that is the same thing, isn't it? That you. You just get on with it and have that commitment. And look where it goes. I, I keep seeing this this thing repeated on Twitter when it comes to her, of. Um, you're just a you're just a pawn for people much bigger than you that you have no idea about, and I'm thinking, a pawn in saving the world. Oh no, how terrible! Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't. People are trying to discredit her for yeah. for trying to do a good thing. I just don't get it. It's, I think that's just that human mentality of like someone's doing something that's that's more than they would. It's like people don't like their friends to kind of like go out of that comfort zone of like who they are. It's like, oh, this person's trying too hard. I want to like pull them back because like it makes me look bad. Yeah, let the Amazon burn. Well, it's interesting also the narrative they're using because psychologically I would always listen to what that the person who's doing the challenging is saying and say, to what extent is that true about themselves? Because you, you listen to a lot of what Trump says about others, or you listen to that statement about yeah. to what extent are they a pawn for, and you think, okay, to what extent is you, the person who's saying that, whoever that might be, I'm not going to name anyone, but we could, um, to what extent are you a pawn for mm. capitalism or the, the system that is mm. actually repeating the ills? To what extent are you just a journalist employed by a newspaper that's owned by, you know, that's just repeating this narrative that, you know, climate change is not happening, it's not real. And and that's the problem of change, isn't it? Because there'll always be... I mean, I found this um, in the very, very early days um, of leaving my job. You know, when I was first self-employed, there was a degree to which, um, to a very small extent, people were slightly uncomfortable with that. 
um, because it challenged, there was an element of it that challenged their own uh, narrative. And I think that's really interesting, you know. Um, and I think now people are a lot more comfortable with it. Um, but whenever you do a change in your life, it's not, you notice that some of your friends get it and are really supportive and, and want the best, genuinely want to help you and want the best for you. But some of them are challenged by it. You give up alcohol, you find that out. Yeah. You know, you'll find a lot of people who, who, who will, you know, they can't cope with it. And it's a challenge to the underlying narrative, isn't it? And we mm. see that again and again. We've seen it in the last two weeks with Extinction Rebellion. People can't accept that, no, there's a fundamentally different way of looking at this that is the truth, actually. It's more justified by the facts. But no, we don't want to accept that because we've got this narrative, haven't we? Mm. And it's, it's what it all comes down to, actually, the fear stuff and everything. It's all about your chosen narrative, actually. And you can... Ch- the, the beautiful thing is it's... When you, once you locate where it is, it's inside your own head and you realise it's a narrative... Actually, who's got the chance to change that? Oh, me. And actually, that's the really scary bit because I have responsibility for changing my own beliefs and narratives. So it's only me that's in my own way. Oh, God, that's really scary. That's really, really scary. In fact, that's the most scary thing of everything is that actually my capability is without limit. I, I can do anything. And that is actually the, that, that's actually the only truly, really, really scary thing. That we place limits on ourselves because we're scared of it. Partly, yeah, because it's easier. And I suppose everyone has their own internal radio station and it's just, I suppose it's just tuning into the right, to the right frequency. I love that metaphor, yeah. It is like a personal We are metaphor. just banging out <laughs> metaphors banging today. Banging out tunes, um, <laughs> yeah, on, on whatever radio station we choose to tune into. Um, yeah, because we're we're a, we're a system beliefs and stories that we tell ourselves. I mean, so obviously you meet people that are, are fearful all all the time because you're running these workshops. Would you say that creative people can be some of the the worst because they have they have such an imagination? Yes, you've nailed it. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I kind of call it sometimes I call it the Alexander McQueen factor that if you the, the same thing that gives you that positive ability to imagine things that are not and that ability to imagine um, whatever your craft is. And let's face it, so many of us work in that field of, of not real objects. Yeah. We're not laying bricks or building houses, are we? We're, so many of us are doing creative things that are constructing things in the imagination or you know come out of the imagination. If you've got that positive capability in the imagination, you've, the danger is you've got the, the negative also, so if you allow that thing to go into slip into the negative space, whoa, where does it take you? So I think just that realization that the massive people with massive creativity are at risk from that sort of bipolar slip into the into the darkness. Um, we need to do something to help all of us with that. You know, we need to see the collateral beauty of the the, the dark because there is beauty in there. It's just. Just don't spend too long there. Yeah, be aware of what. Be aware that it's your imagination. It's not real. Mm. And then be careful of the stuff you take that that can limit your ability to see that. Maybe. So that so with the light and dark, that makes me think of the another analogy, um, the analogy used about um, Punch and Judy. Yeah, well, the thing 
we have to remember is it's all we tend to focus on the individual elements but what we don't really always connect to is the fact it's a system so that without judy there is no punch you know without without victim there is no villain and actually they're they're much more closely linked in a system than we realize and it's the same you know i talk about love and this moment um of realization really that there is no good and bad in this thing because love is about accepting everything it's about accepting the darkness and the um the difficult moments as well as the joyous moments i that's how i see see love it's about accepting both sides of the equation because love is there with you throughout um it's just that we think that it's abandoned us um so you know you've got to be able to see the the texture and the joy in the dark i think trying trying to sort of divide things into good and bad or love and fear kind of is is ultimately quite destructive and unhelpful it's just a judgment you have to be able to basically welcome all the good stuff and all the shit over your doorway and treat it equally amazing um where can people find you online i'm just hillarygallo.com or at hillarygallo on social media amazing thanks for today my pleasure thanks guys thanks for listening we're trying to help a lot of people with this show so we need your help to grow the community and spread our message if you know someone who'd benefit from hearing what we talked about today or they just need a little nudge in the right direction pass this podcast on to them if you want to hear more then subscribe to us on itunes and if we helped you with anything we'll really love you forever if you can leave us an itunes review it makes a huge difference see ya